Well, we've been enjoying a time where Pastor Jim has been taking us through 2 Samuel, and I'm looking forward to his return, and we continue into the rest of this book. But I'm also excited that today I get to bring chapter 5. We've been looking through this story, and it's been a hard one for David. Uh, Ups and downs. If we just look at our headings, if you have an ESV study Bible or Bible, you'll see the headings there. We start off with David hears of Saul's death. And here um, in 1 Samuel, remember, David had been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. And we will rehash all of the life that he had to live, waiting patiently for God to bring him to the throne. And then we come to 2 Samuel, and Saul, the current king of Israel, is defeated in battle and is killed. And you would think, ah, here, the promise is going to come forward and David is going to be the king. Well, you jump over to chapter 2, and you find that he was anointed king. But it was over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And there he reigned in Hebron. God told him, uh, David asked God, what am I supposed to do? And David said, go to Hebron. And that's what he did. He obeyed God, went there. He was anointed by his own tribe, Judah. But, and and he also sent out an envoy to the other tribes, uh, to the people who were loyal to Saul and said, hey, um, I recognize the wonderful thing you have done. And perhaps behind between the lines, I'm ready to be your king. But they rejected him. Abner set up Ishbosheth and became Ishbosheth became a puppet king for Abner. So once again, David is waiting, waiting patiently for the promise. Abner then comes to David and says, ooh, I'm going to give you the kingdom. And he made a covenant with David. And then what happens to Abner? Abner gets killed. The covenant, the plan, the political arrangement is now in jeopardy. What is going to happen to David? Because Joab murders Abner. And then... God, once again, works through uh, unexpected means as two men go in and they kill Eshbosheth. And once again, David is on the brink. Is he going to be king? Is something else going to come up that's going to keep the promise be, from being carried out in the life of David? The promise that he would be the king. And that brings us to chapter 5 and this word, then. Things change. Chapter 5 sets a new stage. Chapter 5 is a joining together of promises made, promises kept, and promises that await. And as we come to chapter 5, it's not simply a story about David. It begins to open up a picture. The stage, the curtains begin to draw back, and the setting of the stage begins to change. 
It doesn't simply begin to change for David and his future, but it begins to reveal and open up for us to see a stage that will lead to today, that will lead to eternity. Let's read together, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And the king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever will strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. We'll pause there before we continue into the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> First, I would like for us to see the king who unites. We have David... Now in Hebron, he is the king of one tribe, but what of the other tribes? And this story goes way back to Genesis when you think about it. I was listening in my devotions and the birth of all of the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel. Uh, And it was very interesting. If you go back to that story, you realize all of those sons were born in conflict, There was a war between two mothers, and those sons were born into that conflict between those two women. And that conflict didn't end there. As you go through uh, the future or the past of the children of Israel, even into Judges, right before we get to the book of Samuel, there was conflict between those tribes. And it didn't end when we came into the kingdom of Saul. If there was one good thing that Saul did, he did bring together these desperate tribes in order to fight against the enemies. But even in that, David himself shows us that Saul was not complete in that uniting of those tribes. As many would come to David, as David was out hiding from Saul... People would come from all the tribes seeking him out. Now they've come. All the tribes of Israel came to David. Now that doesn't mean 
all the tribes, every single man, woman, child, all of a sudden converged in Hebron. These are probably messengers that were sent out from the leadership of the tribes. They came to David there in Hebron, and they said to him, Look, there are three things we want you to know. One, you are bone of our bone. You are legitimate. You have a legitimate right to the king. You're not a foreigner. We are your brothers. Let's let bygones be bygones. Yes, we didn't come to you when Saul died. Yes, we followed Abner. We followed Ishbosheth. But now they're gone. Who is going to lead us? You are our brother. We're coming to you. Then, secondly, they said to him, You are a proven leader. They thought back to the time when Saul was going out and leading the tribes in the battle against the Philistines and the others who were fighting against the children of Israel. And they remembered the song that was sung about David. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. They knew that David was the leader. We need help. We need hope. Our leadership is gone You've proven yourself to be a leader. Come and be the king over us. And it's interesting and perhaps sad that the last thing they brought up was the promise. The fact that David was anointed. And we know that this was common knowledge because how many people so far in 2 Samuel have lost their heads Because they knew that David was supposed to be the king. That God had chosen him to be the king. So when they come to him, they say, look, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel. This is what the Lord has said to you. You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel. And you shall be the prince over Israel. So they come to him and say, look, you're a legitimate king. You are one of us. You can rule over this people. You are a leader. You've shown it. You are a man mighty in battle. You can lead us against our enemies. And then we also recognize that God has placed you here. David is a king who is uniting the people. But is it really David uniting the people? All through 1 Samuel, all through 2 Samuel to this point, as we followed along with David and how he has struggled and had trials in waiting for this promise, God has been at work. God has been leading even in ways that didn't seem to be God. But God was working. To bring David to this time, to this point. And I think it's important for us to understand here that the narrator is not necessarily taking us through a blow-by-blow account of what was happening in David's life at this point. He's chosen three different events and he's put them together into this one chapter. And they don't necessarily follow in order. As a matter of fact, you see, when he becomes the king, it lists the time that he was in Hebron and the time that he was in Jerusalem. Well, we haven't even gotten to Jerusalem yet. So the narrator is taking a large timeline and it's kind of like 
fishing. You throw, throw out the line, you catch the fish on the hook, and what do you do? You draw it in, and then you let it out, so the hook will set a little bit more. Then you pull it in, and then the line goes out a little bit more. The narrator is taking us into the future and then back, and then into the future and back. He's showing us something. He wants us to get something here more than just, hey, this is what happened in David's life. The narrator is trying to teach the people who are reading this book, reading this chapter, he was trying to teach them something greater. And he's trying to teach us something greater. God is trying to teach us something greater through this word. And I believe that what he is pointing us to is that the king who unites is not simply David. The king who unites is Jesus. David is a symbol, a type of Jesus. Jesus is the king who unites. David united a tribe. Jesus will unite all of his chosen into his kingdom. He will ultimately unite the whole world in his kingdom. Jesus is the king who unites. And if we look a little bit further into the life of David, what do we find? We find ultimately David did not permanently unite the people. Even David failed. But Jesus will never fail. David, the shepherd king. Now in this context, the shepherd king, the idea here is that it was a covenant being made between Israel and David. And they were setting up the rules of the kingdom. David was not to be a king who did things for himself. He was to do what he did for the people of God. And we'll read that later in the chapter where he recognizes that God established him not for his own good, but for his people. And Jesus is our shepherd king. He leads us. By still waters. He comforts us. He is our king. Our shepherd king. We see. That all the elders came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. We'll notice. That there is this word all. We see it first in verse 1. All the tribes. And then, after the messengers went back to the leadership, now we see the elders. And it says, all the elders. Now, because a favorable response has come from David, the elders come to David and they make the covenant with him. And then we finish out this particular section with all of Israel and Judah made him king. And he ruled over, reigned over all of Israel and Judah. David has united the kingdom. All the people, all the tribes, all the divisiveness has been set aside. And David has become the king. David led, God led David to Hebron where he ruled over the tribe of Israel. 
Judah, while waiting patiently for the kingdom that was promised. And now the story is going to turn to Jerusalem. Is your life full of division? Who or what is the king of your life? Are you running to Abner? Are you running to Jacob? Are you running to things of this world that you think will bring the peace that you seek? Are you looking to get rid of all the struggles and the trials that you face by maybe drowning yourself in some pleasure of this world, making that your king or your work? You've made work your king. What can you gain? What can you bring in? How can you dull the challenge and the division of your heart by seeking after all of these things? Jesus is the king who unites. Come to Jesus. He can't only unite desperate people He can unite the brokenness of your heart. He can heal you. He can make you whole. He's not simply a God who unites people. He's the God who can unite your spirit in him. Make Jesus your king. Then they go to Jerusalem. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Now, studying this, it was kind of fascinating. And it's hard for me not to jump into all of that and waste a lot of time this morning talking about all the cool things that we learn about David. But I do want to touch on a couple of them. One is, where was David born? David was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was right down the road from Jerusalem. So as David was growing up, he was very well aware of this stronghold of the Jebusites. He kind of lived in the shadow of this stronghold. Israel was supposed to have gone in there and destroyed it. We read in Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces that Abraham had put forward as an offering before God. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cabanites, and the Hittites, and the Parasites, and the Raphim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites." So when Israel was coming into the land, their job was to go and to dispossess all of these people in the land. They were to remove them from their positions of power, and Israel was to inhabit the land where they dwelt. Well, the Jebusites came in and took this stronghold, and they built it up, and Israel could not get rid of them. They made it into Jerusalem and had burned what was there, but they could not break down this fortress. And the Jebusites ruled and continued to possess the land there. So David was well aware that they were there. And when 
David went and killed Goliath. What did he do? He chopped off his head. And where did David take the head of Goliath? He took it to Jerusalem. He took it to where these Jebusites were. And I think David was sending them a message. You're next. We're going to come after you. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be dwelling in this land. We are supposed to have this place. But as we can see, that didn't happen immediately. But now we've come to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And what does it say? The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. So David took his men, most likely. These were the men who were loyal to him. And the army that had come around him. And they went against Jerusalem. And we have this interesting story about how the city was taken. Or the fortress was taken. And we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, People have postulated what might have happened. Uh, They crawled up a water shaft that you may be able to see today in Jerusalem. But then another archaeologist comes along and says, well, no, that actually couldn't have been the one. All we know is that David lived in that area and he obviously had some idea of how to get into that fortress. It probably did involve some type of waterway. But they made their way in because of David's strategic thinking, his planning, and they overcame this fortress. The city is worn. The city is won. Another very exciting thing about this particular passage is this is the first time the name Zion is mentioned in the Bible. Now, we'll go on from here as you read through God's word, and you'll find it over 130 times more, even more than Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Must be an incredible, special place. Well, of a sort, because God made it that way, but it really isn't that daunting of a hill. (laughs) If you think of the Greek And the gods that they have, Mount Olympus, rising up with its snow peak. uh, Unobtainable. How could you get to the peak? The gods must live up there. But Mount Zion was very approachable. Uh, It was not that high. But the city has a special story for us, message for us. We go back to Abram again. When he met Melchizedek in the city of Salem. This was Zion. And we see that king of Salem. A priest of God. And Abram gave obedience to him there. It's also the place where David brought that head of Goliath. The initial readers of the narrator's words. The place would engender feelings of national and religious pride. Here. David came and he set up his kingdom. And it's very smart that David did what he did. Because he was down in uh, Judah, in Hebron. And then when the Israelites came to him and said, let's make you king. He decided to move up to a more central area. A place that was on the edge of both Judah and Israel. 
and the Benjamites, and he made that his kingdom. And interestingly enough, when he took the fortress, he wasn't even taking land of other Israelites. He was taking the land of the Jebusites and bringing it into the kingdom. So this was a very astute political move for David to go and to take this hill. Was about 12 acres, so not very large. But how big it became. David takes the fortress. When we think of Zion, the thing that we see beyond this story on the stage that David is setting up, the picture of Zion is that that is where God dwells. It's the place where in the Psalms, God says, that is the place where I'm going to put my name. The beauty of Zion is that it is the place, not Mount Olympus, where God is out of reach of his people. Mount Zion is the place where God comes to be with his people. Later, we're going to see that David brings and what ends up there in this area is the temple. The temple where God comes and dwells with his people. David was coming into the central area to dwell with all of Israel. He wasn't limiting himself just to one tribe. He was coming to dwell with all of Israel. And Jesus has come to dwell with all of us. We read about him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And people crying out, King of kings! And then they killed him. Did the story end? Were they just like Abner? Were they like Jacob? I mean, sorry, um, Joab? The king is coming again. He built a house there. We read that in verses 11 and 12. And then we read this sad thing. And David took more concubines. And this is in verse 11. I mean, verse 12. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhet, Elishama, Elida, and Nelephalet. These are sons that are being born to him. Now again, we know that some of these were the sons of Bathsheba. So this didn't happen immediately. (laughs) This is again, the line is going out. And it's being reeled in. We're going in and seeing the whole picture before we come back to see a smaller picture amongst the whole. The thing with this is a positive in that, in that day and age, as people would have their sons and daughters and they would make alliances through marriage, the kingdom would get solidified. It would it would. He would strengthen his kingdom, a king would, by doing these things. And David was doing that. Unfortunately, it shows us what will happen in the future. It's a foreshadowing 
of chapter 11 of our, of our text in 2 Samuel chapter 5. David is a king who dwells with his people, but David is not a perfect king. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within our citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. God dwells with us. And it's interesting as we read this psalm, it says his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The picture of Mount Olympus or uh, Mount Everest, high. But we know that physically it's not that large of a hill. What makes it elevated is that because God has made himself known as a fortress. Not the hill, the God. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Jesus is that cornerstone. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the precious cornerstone of the foundation of the kingdom of God. Are you living in the protection of that fortress? Are you seeking to find your power, your strength somewhere else? Are you trying to fight your own battles? Or are you running to Zion? Are you running to the Almighty King? Come to Jesus. He is the King who dwells with us. And then we see the King who conquers Beginning in verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. The enemies are coming up against him. Before, they just looked at David probably as a vassal. Remember, Uh, David actually went and lived with the Philistines for a little while in order to escape um, Saul. And then the Philistines were probably enjoying this divided kingdom that was taking place. But then the king united. The king came and set up his, his home. And now the Philistines are coming up against David. Now we don't know exactly where the stronghold was that David went down to. Perhaps it was even in the beginnings of having taken over Jerusalem. But most likely this happened early after The Jews came and made him the king of all of Israel. David went down to the stronghold and God protected him. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. David is seeking God's guidance. Unlike Saul, who tried to use rituals, who tried to use God as an incantation to carry out what he wanted, David came and asked of God. Though I do find it interesting 
David didn't ask God about the Jebusites. He immediately went up against the Jebusites. I think there's a lesson for us to learn there. When God has given you a clear command, you don't need to ask. Just do it. Obey. David knew that the Jebusites were supposed to be removed from the land, and so he went and did what God told him to do. When the Philistines came against him, he sought out God's guidance. How am I supposed to deal with these enemies that are coming against me? Specifically, God, what do you want me to do? And God sends him and says, go, go forward and fight. He guides him, he guides the king. And David came to Belperazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of the place was called Belperazim, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. This hearkened back to when the Israelites first came into the land, God going before them as a mighty wind, going before them as hornets, defeating the foes, making way for his people to advance and to be victorious. We have a picture of the breaking out of God. Belperazim means Lord of breaks or the Lord of the breaking through. God was breaking through for David. Yes, David was fighting the battle, but God went before. God carried out the power. Not only were the Philistines defeated, but their gods were defeated. And this brings to mind the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant when, again, they tried to use it as a talisman in the defeat and the Ark was taken. The Philistines took the Ark. Now the Philistines are attacking against Israel and David, the king chosen by God, destroys, defeats the Philistines and takes their idols And destroys them. And this is again setting the stage for the return of the ark. Jerusalem needed to be there for the ark to return. David is setting the stage for something bigger. I would say God is using David to set the stage for something bigger. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines. From Gibba to Gezer. The Philistines came again and they spread out in the valley. And the Lord told him this time, don't go up. This time, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. David does not assume God's direction. Oh, here comes the Philistines again. I'm just going to go out against them because I know God told me to do it before, so I'm going to go out and God's going to work. David went back to God. He didn't assume how God was going to lead. And he sought God, and God gave him another plan. So we see a God who is consistently protecting David, but he's doing it in various ways. So God brings the victory to the king. It is complete. 
is from Geba to Gezer, is from the high to the low. He's cleared the land of the Philistines. David's victory was complete. Are you an enemy of God? Perhaps you today don't want anything to do with Jesus. You are a Philistine. You are an enemy. You stand as an enemy of God. You will be destroyed. God will be victorious over your rebellion. You cannot win. Surrender. Surrender to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the king who conquers. Are you advancing the kingdom? Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Give yourself to the cause of Jesus. He is the king who conquers. David conquered. He cleared the land. But as we know, it didn't stay that way. The people were even taken out of the land into exile. David's kingship did not last in that physical land. But Jesus lasts. Jesus is the king. He is the kingdom. He is the eternal king who unites a fractured world. He dwells with those he leads. And he reigns victorious over his enemies. And when you are his child, his enemies are your enemies. And your enemies are his enemies. Do you recognize him as king? That is what the narrator is trying to point to us today. David, a king who united a human people, a nation, who made a city to dwell with them, to be their leader, who protected them from their enemies and defeated them. That is David. But David is pointing to a king who can unite the desperate needs of your soul, a broken heart, broken by sin. He can unite you. He is uniting his people from every tribe, every nation, into his kingdom. He dwells with us. You are Zion because God dwells with you as we have come to be together as his body as his church he rules he rules in us and we can trust him we can run to the fortress that mighty fortress who is our god and we can find joy in his glory as king of king and lord of lords. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone, and hope is sure. 
Christ is mine forevermore. Father, use your word. I pray that your word would go forward in power beyond anything that I've said this morning. We pray that your spirit would use your word to let us see the king, the king of kings. We are thankful for this life of David who has pointed us, set the stage for such a great king. And we look forward to chapter 7. Help us to recognize you as the king who unites us, the king who dwells with us, and the king who is victorious for us. We pray these things in his name, the King of Kings. Amen. Thank you very much, Pastor Jonathan. Indeed, we are privileged as Christ followers to follow the Lord. We are his ambassadors, we are his servants, but it may be that there's someone here today who has never personally accepted the gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ as Savior. We're going to sing a song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Let me encourage you to do this. Would you evaluate your soul's condition before the Lord? And if you need to turn your eyes from self-trust to God-trust, would you even do that as we sing? And move from darkness into light. If you're a believer here today, a reminder in this song, let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. This song is a very intense song if we allow ourselves to be immersed in the text. Let me just call attention to one phrase before we sing in verse 4. Every knee will bow, every tongue will shout, all glory to Jesus alone. That day's coming. There's no reason we can't have that type of intensity even as we close the service. Would you stand please as we sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn. 